2 Samuel chapter 18. Tonight we'll be picking up in verse 19, but before we do, just by way of review to make sure we're all remembering what's going on, uh, Israel has been in the middle of a, of a, we could say it's a civil war, it's an uprising of sorts, and there's a, there's a battle taking place. On, on one side we have King David. King David's been leading the nation Israel for a number of years. He's been a very successful king. He's a warrior. He's the one who, who defeated Goliath. Uh, he's been very, very successful in leadership. To this day he is known as the greatest king of Israel of all time. Uh, he's been, like I said, very, very successful, but he's had a little stumbles, a few falls along the way. You know, we had the whole Bathsheba thing. We realized he had many wives and he had concubines, which he wasn't supposed to have as a king. He was only supposed to have one wife. Uh, we had a period of time where he was running from King Saul that he actually defected and went to live among the Philistines. Uh, so he's had a few stumbles along the way, but we've talked about how, how that gives us a good picture of who he really was. You know, he's known as a man after God's own heart. And, we and I like the fact that the scripture shows us who he really was. It doesn't paint just half a picture because sometimes that happens in life. You ever read a book or you read a story or read an article on something or somebody and it portrays this person to be this wonderful person and everything is just perfect in their life. And, you know, when they homeschool their kids, all their kids listen and their kids do perfect, their chores, everything's just wonderful but they really only tell you the half the story. But the scriptures are pretty good. They tell us the full story with David and allows us to see that, yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a human being who made mistakes, and, uh, and we see that. On the other side of this civil war, we had a guy by the name of Absalom. Absalom was David's third son. He was, he was a son of David. He probably would have been next in line to take the, the throne of uh, Israel. Uh, however, he wasn't willing to wait. He wanted it now. He didn't want to wait for it. And Absalom had been raised, he was a good-looking young man, he had a, we, we read about a, the, his full head of hair, we talk, the scriptures talk about that, but he was kind of raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. David kind of pampered and kind of babied all of his kids. Uh, Absalom had some history as well, he'd previously murdered his brother Amnon, and he did that because Amnon had raised, raped his sister Tamar. So there's a, there's a, talk about a dysfunctional family, although David was a great king, his family was rather dysfunctional. And uh, this is what we see the civil war as a part of that. And, he, and Absalom was well aware of his father's sins. That would have been well known with, with Bathsheba and, and Uriah and all of those things. That, that certainly would have been, been known. He was unable to wait for the throne. So Absalom sets out. He's going to take the throne from his father by force. After plotting and planning and deceiving the people, Absalom launched his attack on David. And ultimately, King David was forced to flee the city of Jerusalem. He came down uh, from the city of David, crossed the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, heading uh, eastward, and he was off into the desert trying to flee from Absalom. As he left, he prayed that the advice that Absalom would receive from David's top advisor, Ahithophel, who had defected to Absalom, he prayed that Ahithophel would give uh, Absalom some, some bad advice. And David, being the smart guy he was, he didn't leave without leaving some spies in place. He left some key people in key places. The priests he left behind, a few other guys he left behind. He wanted to keep, a, keep his finger on the pulse of what was going on within the city and with Absalom. And it kind of shows us what was, what, you know, David was, it shows us his military mind, that he really was a great military leader. So what takes place is Absalom pursues David out of the desert and the stage is set for a battle. The battle is going to take place. But before the battle happens, David says something rather important. He says to, the, to all of the leaders, he set three guys in charge of different, three different divisions of the men. He says to them, listen, I don't want Absalom killed. I want him taken alive. I do not want him killed. Do not kill Absalom. The battle ensues. Then in chapter 18, verse 9, we read, Then Absalom met the servants of David. 
Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head was caught in the terebinth tree. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule, which was under him, went on. Which means Absalom was left dangling like feet off the ground, you know, hanging in the tree. One of David's men sees Absalom hanging there, but he doesn't do anything about it. He goes and he tells Joab, and Joab says, he says, hey, I saw Absalom. He's hanging over there in the tree. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? He goes, I would have made you a general. I would have given you money. Why didn't you go get him? And he goes, uh-uh. I heard what King David said. He, no one's to touch my son. And I can just imagine as Joab and, and this man are walking back over towards where Absalom was, and, Ab, and Joab gets there. And what does Joab do? Joab kills him. He puts three spears into him, and he kills him. And, uh, you know, Joab, we, we talked about this last week. Joab did this. You know, was it the right thing to do? Probably not in violating the order, but was it the best thing to do for the nation Israel? Sure it was. It was, it was a smart decision in that sense. Joab was doing what he thought was right. So what we, where we pick up in 19, Absalom has died, but David hasn't received word of that yet. He's still back waiting to hear the battle because David was told, stay back behind. We don't want you in the battle with us. You're too valuable for that. You stay here. Stay hidden. Stay, stay, stay out of the way. So he's waiting to hear news from the battle. And that's exactly where we pick up in, chapter, or in verse 19 of chapter 18. If you'll follow along with me. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab, who was David's general, said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Ahimaaz was a messenger. He was known as a good man, and he usually brought good news. They couldn't email back and forth. They couldn't text back and forth. They couldn't send a letter. When they wanted to get news back and forth, they had to send a messenger. So what they would have is they would have certain guys. They were quick runners. Their job was to carry messages back and forth. So that's what Ahimaaz is doing. You can see his uh, enthusiasm. Let me run. Let me take the news. Can I please go tell David that we've won? We've defeated, we've defeated uh, Absalom. We're, we're victorious here. Can I be the one to take him? And you see Joab says, no, you're not taking the news this day. Why not? Let me take him. No, you're going to take the news another day. Why, why, why? Because the king's son is dead. You see, Joab has a good idea of how David's going to react when he finds out that his order was violated. He understands what's taking place, so Joab tells him, no, you don't want to take this news. This isn't the news you want to carry. You're known for carrying good news. You don't want to carry this news. But you've got to understand something. Ahimaaz thinks it's good news because of the victory in the battle. See, in, in Ahimaaz's mind, in all of the people's mind that were fighting with David, the news is good. It's not bad whatsoever because they've defeated the enemy. It just so happens the enemy happens to be David's son. Joab says, I'm going to send somebody else. Then in verse 21, Joab said to the Cushite, go, you tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and he ran. Now, instead of sending Ahimaaz, Joab sent the Cushite. Cushite means Ethiopian. That's what have been where he's from. Now, why would he send the Cushite instead of Ahimaaz? A couple of reasons. Perhaps, perhaps the Cushite was more expendable. Perhaps he was afraid how David would respond when he got the news and he may just kill the messenger. So maybe, maybe that's the case. Or perhaps the Cushite had more knowledge of the situation. Maybe he was actually there and saw the whole thing. Whatever the reason was, Joab makes this command decision that says, Ahimaaz, you're staying here. And the Cushite, you're going to take the news to King David. Verse 22. 
Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So Joab tells the Cushite, hey, take the news to David about Absalom. And then after he leaves is what it sounds like that Ahimaaz comes to Joab and says, listen, can I please go? Remember the old cartoon with the little dog and the big dog and always says, come on, Spike, you want to go chase cars? He's, and he sm- That's what it sounds like here. <laughs> come on, can I please go? Can I, I think, what was, it, what was the cartoon? Anybody remember? Spike was the dog, uh, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon, something like that. But that's, that's kind of the impression I get here. Come on, can I run? Can I run? No. Come on, can I run? Can I run? Fine. Just, and I got to believe Joab's thinking, listen, the Cushite, he's already halfway there by now. He's already got a head start. There's no way that you're going to catch him. You, you don't have any news to tell. Fine, if you want to run, just go run. But you see what took place there? It says he went by the way of the plain. He outran the Cushite. Him as asked to run again, Joab says, you don't have any news, but notice he went a different way. He went a quicker way. He was a faster runner. So he actually beat the Cushite to where King David was. Look at verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up on the roof over the gate to the wall. He lifted his eyes, he looked, and there was a man running alone. And the watchman, he cried out and he told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king, that's David, said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man, and he comes with good news. Apparently, Ahimaaz had a unique running style. (laughs) Apparently, they could recognize him. Maybe it was because he was so fast. Who knows? But whatever the reason is, the watchman's up there going, I I think that's him. That looks like Ahimaaz. Oh, David goes, oh, yeah, he's a good man. He must be bringing good news. Remember, you ever wait for a letter to come in the mail, or you wait for something, and you're always, and you're looking. Here they come. You know, we live on it up, up a hill a little bit. And uh, it's funny to watch if you're waiting for someone to come, you always look down the road. Are they here yet? What do we see? Have they turned up the road yet? Are they coming yet? And that's what's taking place. They're looking for news. He's probably on pins and needles wondering what's going on in the battle. What's taking place? Oh, here comes somebody running. Here they come. And now, Ahimaaz gets there first in verse 28. So Ahimaaz called out and he said to the king, all is well. And he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So just get the picture. Here he comes. He bows down. All is well, king. He falls down on his face. He says, Blessed be the Lord your God, He's delivered, who has delivered the men up the men who raised their hand against you. And David looks at him and he says, Is the young man Absalom safe? That's David's response. Is Absalom safe? Did you follow my order about Absalom? He doesn't ask about the status of his men. He doesn't ask about how's Joab doing. He doesn't ask about the people of Israel. How many people did we lose in the battle? He simply says, is Absalom safe? Do you see the problem with this? Do you see his concern? David had a whole bunch of men that were fighting for him. 
A whole bunch of men who had left their land in Jerusalem that were being faithful to him. Yet he's concerned about the unfaithful son who would kill him in a moment. If he could find him, he would kill him himself in a moment. Joab's forget, or David's forgetting all those who were loyal to him, but yet he's concerned only for his son. And notice what Ahimaaz answers. Ahimaaz answers, he says, uh, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. So Ahimaaz basically says to David, uh, I don't know. I don't know if Absalom's dead. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if Absalom's safe. I don't know. There, there was a big tumult. There was a big ruckus over there. And I don't know what happened. I just, I'm just told to send to tell you that we, that we won. You see, he's realizing I probably shouldn't have carried this message. Now, maybe he really doesn't know what, ha- what happened. Why didn't he answer David's question? Probably, possibly. He knew about the king's order to take Absalom alive. He knew that Absalom was dead and he was afraid of the king's response. That could be one reason why he didn't answer his question. The other reason could be he really didn't know the answer to the question. But whatever the purpose is, whatever the reason is, he's not saying what took place. So King David says, go on, get out of the way. Just, you just move over here. Verse 31, just then the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man, Absalom, safe? So the Cushite answered and said, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. In other words, what did he tell him? He's dead. He's not alive. But he told it in a very poetic and actually a rather nice way. May may anybody that rises up against you, may they end up like him. You know, which basically saying that he's dead. But notice what David's concern is. His only concern was about Absalom. Is Absalom safe? Is Absalom, Absalom who was a traitor. Yes, he was his son, but he was a traitor. He was coming against David. He was killing David. David should have been more concerned about the nation and about the loyal people than he should have been about his son who was a traitor. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute, Rob. Wait a minute. It's a father-son relationship. It's a parent-child relationship. It's, it's, shouldn't we put family first? Shouldn't we put family first? Well, I think it kind of depends because let's just recap what's going on in David's life. David was anointed the king of Israel by God, right? David was ruling over the nation of Israel by God. Absalom was coming against David in his ministry, physically coming against him. He was coming against David's calling. Sometimes as men and leaders, we're forced to make difficult decisions involving family. Sometimes it's hard to make a decision. And while the death of Absalom hurt David, David must look out for his responsibilities that he's called to by God, that he's been given as a shepherd over God's people. When forced to choose between family and God, it won't be easy, but you should choose God. You should choose the Lord first. After all, that's what Muslims do that convert to Christianity, isn't it? Because most of their families, what happens when they become a believer in Jesus Christ? What happens to them? They're ostracized. They're kicked out. They're considered dead. They don't even talk to them. So when it comes down to it, should David have been more concerned about the nation and the people? He should have been more concerned about God. And God had placed the responsibility of the people on his shoulders. Instead, he's concerned about his son who was a traitor. He's concerned about that. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you this question. 
I like these two messengers. They both basically brought the same message. One had a little more details than the other. But would you say that one of these guys is a better messenger than the other one? One of them, one of them provided a true message. One of them provided only a partial truth message. Let me put it to you this way. Himaz, he was more enthusiastic, wasn't he? He wanted to run. He was a faster runner and he got there first. And he delivered a good message. But the problem was he didn't deliver the whole message, did he? He only delivered a part of a message. The second guy, the Cushite, well, he wasn't as fast, and his message was much more accurate. It included all the details. It was much more complete. You say, what does that matter? Because listen, as pastors, if you're as a pastor, the message I deliver is important. To deliver half a message, that's not very good. To deliver only part of a message, to deliver only a portion of a message, For those that are Sunday school teachers, for those that teach home Bible studies, for those who share the word of God with your friends at work, for those who talk to your neighbors about the things of the Lord, are you going to be a good messenger for the Lord? Or are you just going to tell them part of the message? Why wasn't Ahimaaz a good messenger? My personal belief, he was afraid of what David was going to say when he received the whole message. And so often, as a pastor, you can be tempted to water down a message of the word of God because you're afraid of what the people or how the people will respond to the message that's been given. You see, it's not about how the people respond. It's about being a good messenger. So whether it's me behind a pulpit, whether it's somebody teaching in Sunday school, whether it's somebody teaching in youth group, whether you're sharing the Bible with your neighbor, with your friends, with your family, with your husband and your wife, make sure the message that is delivered is the true message. Make sure it's the whole message. You can have a pastor who's enthusiastic, who's fast, who's cool, who's hip, who presents all the, who's a good speaker, who presents all the good qualities, entertaining, makes you laugh, makes it funny, but if his message isn't complete, he's not a good messenger. You can also have a pastor who might stumble over his words a little bit. Maybe he's not as polished. Maybe he doesn't wear cool clothes. Maybe he doesn't do like the cool pastor does, and he doesn't have lights and a smoke machine and all that kind of stuff, but his message is complete. Which one do you want to hear? I don't know about you, but I want to hear the complete message of the word of God, not just the partial message, because I need to hear the whole thing. I don't want to just hear the parts I want to hear. I need to hear the parts that I don't want to hear more than the parts that I want to hear, because that's what God's word talks about. So there was a good messenger. I believe there was a better messenger here, and it was the Cushite. Now let's look at David's response as he realizes Absalom is killed. Verse 33, then the king was deeply moved And he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It says that David was deeply moved. The word there, it means violent trembling. Violent trembling. It doesn't mean that he was sad. It doesn't mean that he was disappointed. It means that he was violently trembling. He was moved to a place of just unbelievable anguish, moved to a place of just unbelievable emotion. His emotions were just pouring over him, and he became to a situation or to a place where he was violently trembling. He became unglued. He became unraveled, if you will. He was was just so deeply moved. Why would David be this deeply moved over the death of his son? Why, what, would, what, what would be some reasons that he would be so deeply moved? I think the first and obvious reason would be it's his son. 
right? I mean, that's the most obvious one. It's his son. It's, it's a father-son. The bond between a parent and a child runs deep, right? He realizes it's his son. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, our children may plunge into the worst of sins, but they are our children still. They may scoff at our God. They may tear our heart to pieces with their wickedness. We cannot take complacency in them, but at the same time, we cannot unchild them nor erase their image from our hearts. Our children are our children, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they've gotten. It's still a parent-child relationship. And no matter what David's doing, this situation is hard. This situation is difficult. He's already lost one son in Amnon. Now he's lost Absalom. His family is in dysfunction, in, in disrepair. It's, it's, his daughter has been raped. It's a mess, and he's dealing with this anguish. So the natural reason why is he so moved by emotion is because it's his son. It's because it's a loss of a loved one, a close, it, it, it's family, it's, it's, it's your blood. But I also think there's another reason. Number two, I think David realizes that he had some responsibility in creating this situation. You see, there's some guilt falling over David. He realizes that he has some responsibility here. Maybe he's looking back at the way he parented Absalom. Maybe I shouldn't have raised him that way. Maybe I let him get away with too much. Maybe I should have held him more accountable. Maybe I didn't discipline him properly. As a matter of fact, it doesn't look like he disciplined him at all. I didn't hold him accountable. He's got this guilt thing going back as he looks back, as he sees what his child has become. He's looking back and he's feeling guilty about it. Number two in there, he's also remembering his sin with Bathsheba because he remembers what God said during that time. You see, remember David had an affair with Bathsheba and ultimately killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah through the hand of Absalom and through battle married Bathsheba had a child and he's realizing as he looks back over that whole situation he's remembering what we read in 2nd Samuel chapter 12 verse 10 and it said this now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house boy he's living that isn't he because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife thus says the Lord behold I will raise up adversity against you from your own house I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor Remember what Absalom did last week with David's concubines? That took place then. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. So as David looks, along, looks on the situation, he realizes, I've got some responsibility here. I messed up with Bathsheba. Maybe I didn't raise my kids right. Uh, he's also remembering, what, what, when, when you look at your kids sometimes, you can, do you ever, maybe you've heard the saying, you can, sometimes your kids represent you so well, you can see your own little sin running around. Because they do the very same things that you do. They say the same things. They act the same way. And it might not be offensive to you when you see it, when you do it. But when your kids do it, what do you say? Stop that. Don't talk like that. Don't act like that. Change your attitude. It's a wonder they don't always look good. Well, that's what you do. But that's what we do. Our kids manifest it in us. They see it. They learn it from us. That's where they get it from. So David's thinking, too, of his own sinful indulgences. He's remembering, he's looking at Absalom and he's seeing his vices, the things that he's done wrong. And he looks at him and goes, those are my characteristics. They're just magnified in him. They're just grown greater in him. I didn't control them in my life. Therefore, now they've given birth in his life. It's gotten worse. King David was only supposed to have one wife, but he chose to have many and concubines as well. Absalom saw that in his life. How do you tell your son to live a godly life when you're not doing it? How do you tell your daughter to live a godly life when you're not doing it? David had several concubines. Absalom was aware of that. As a matter of fact, he took advantage of that when he went to take over the kingdom of Israel. Came into Jerusalem last week. We saw it. What did he do? He set up a tent on the king's palace and went into all of his concubines. That's what the, that's what the scriptures tell us. 
David had rebelled against God for a time, for a period when he went to live with the Philistines. Absalom would have been aware of that. He knew his father's shortcomings and his father's vices long before, probably better than anybody. Listen, I say all this because for those of us that are parents, we need to realize something. It doesn't matter how old your kids are, how young your kids are. It's not too late to start. Not only do we have a responsibility to train our children to be godly, we have to teach them to be godly. We also have the responsibility to train ourselves to be godly. If I don't train myself to be godly, how could I ever teach my children to be godly? And that's exactly what David's looking for. He's watched the way his kid has turned out, and now he's crushed emotionally because he's thinking, man, what have I done? What have I done? What, what, I, I, I've blown it. Listen, if we, don't tra- if we don't train ourselves to be godly, we can't train our kids to be godly. And quite honestly, the results, they could be deadly, couldn't they? It can leave the family in turmoil. What if David had done it right? What if he'd only had one wife? He wouldn't have had a daughter that was raped. Probably wouldn't have had two sons that were killed. All the turmoil. Wouldn't have had the whole Bathsheba thing, the Uriah thing. All the, the bloodshed on his hands. Wouldn't have had all of that. Oh, what have we created for ourselves sometimes in the mistakes that we've made? What have we done? Not that God can't redeem this because he can. God, it's, it's never too late. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He said, we cannot stand in the presence of that suffering without learning the solemn lesions of parental responsibility that it has to teach. Not merely in training our children, but in that early training of ourselves for their sakes. You know, it reminds me, we, we forget as parents how important it is to model the very things that we teach to our children. It's so important for us to do it. Yeah, you, sometimes you'll talk to people and they talk about how great the 40s and the 50s were. How the family was so great. It was so cohesive. It was, what a great family. It was, you know, there was no crime. There was none of this. There was nothing. But do you realize that the kids born in the 40s were the same kids who rebelled in the 60s? Think about it. That's, the 60s came out of the 40s. If the family in the 40s and the 50s were so great, what happened in the 60s? What happened in the 70s? What happened in the 80s? Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. And this is only my opinion. And it's not doesn't come with much research, but here's what I think. I think the families in the 40s and 50s, they may have been part of church. They may have been going to church. They may may have even been to church on Sunday, but they weren't modeling the things they were learning in church. You know, church was something we did on Sunday, not the rest of the week. From Sunday Sunday afternoon to Saturday night, we kind of did what we want. Kids saw that. So what happens the minute they got old enough, they wanted to do what? I want to rebel from these rules. They're not affecting my parents and anything. All, All I see is what? Hypocrisy. I see fakeness. I see, I see it as hypocrisy. David's realizing this, and he's carrying this burden. And he even says, If only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom. And you, as a parent, you can almost relate to that. Because when your child is sick, you, you, you want to you, you take away the pain. You want to take away the hurt. And David's saying, you know, he's suffering with this guilt and this remorse. If only I had died in your place. If only I could die in your place. It'd been better for me to die in your place. And I want to just draw your attention to something. As he's suffering, he says, he repeats, my son, oh my son. David recognized how much he was responsible for his son. He recognized this burden. It's as though he had said, he is indeed my son. His weakness are my weaknesses. His passions are my passions. And his sins are my sins. He connects with his son on this level. And it also kind of gives us the brief glimpse of our Heavenly Father, doesn't it? 
Because what David was unable to do for his son, our Heavenly Father did for us. Oh, if I could die in your place. Didn't Jesus do that for us? Didn't he go to the cross to die in our place? Isn't that what happened? So David's up in his chamber mourning, and he's moved with emotion. He's, he's overcome by emotion as he's violently trembling. Joab, verse 19, gets word of it. Joab was told, huh? Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For all the people heard it, that, heard it and said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as the people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. From victory to mourning, word gets back to Joab. This is not good. This is not a good situation. These people had fought for David. They had given their lives for David. They would left their homes behind as they left, as they fled the city of Jerusalem with David. And now we hear that they, well, it says, and they stole back into the city. That means they snuck back into the city. That means instead of coming back in a procession of victory, we have overcome our enemy, we've conquered, we have won, they're sneaking back into the city because they, they don't know what to think because their king, word has gotten back that their king, well, he's upstairs crying. He's upstairs mourning. Who's he mourning for? To them, it's their enemy. He's upset. He's mourning for their enemy. They'd left Jerusalem with David. Now David is treating them as if they'd done something wrong. In fact, they're the ones that have been faithful. Do you think there's a possibility that this mourning on David's on behalf is, is a bit excessive? Do you think there's such a thing as excessive mourning? I do. One commentator wrote this. He said, there is such a thing as excessive mourning. Mourning that is basically rooted in unbelief and self-indulgence. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul warned Christians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Some Christians sorrow at times in death or tragedy like those who have no hope in God. And this is wrong to do. For the believer, there's a time for mourning, but there's also a time for praise. Because the person, if you've lost a loved one that is, that is in heaven, you will see them again someday, the scripture says. That's what Paul's saying. Don't, you, know, you have hope as a believer. You're going to see them again. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if your dear ones are dead, you cannot restore them to life by your unbelief. Your strength is to sit still. Remember that you're a Christian. And a Christian is expected to be more self-possessed than those who have no God to fly to. As Christians, we're supposed to be the ones that have it together because we understand God is in control. We understand that the people are sneaking back into the city. They're afraid of what's going on. King David's upstairs. He's covered his face. He's, he's, he's falling apart. This is not a good situation for the king. The people, the very people who have gone to him, and now he's mourning. Chapter 19, verse 4. But the king covered his face. The king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He notice he repeats my son. You see the connection there. My son, my son, my son. Verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and he said, Today you have disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. 
For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Wow. I don't know what to make of Joab. Sometimes I think, Joab, man, he's a tough guy. But yet he comes across, this is the kind of friend somebody needs. This is the kind of leader that you need working, that'll come to you and say, listen, you're being stupid right now. You've just told everybody that you don't care about them. You need to, do, you need to straighten this situation out. He says, it looks like you'd rather, rather we all died and Absalom been alive. He's telling them like it is. He needs to hear that. But then Absalom's a different guy because at the same time, he's, not, he's the kind of guy that's not afraid to put a spear against the king's order in, his son, in, the, in the king's very own son because he realizes what that would do to him. I'm kind of torn about it. Part of, I, part of Absalom, I go, I love it. And other parts of it, I go, oh. I'm sorry, Joab, not Absalom. Part of him, you look at it, I love, what he, I love his passion. He, he's always looking out for David. He's loyal. He's right there for him, always doing what he thinks is right. But yet, it doesn't seem like what he's always doing is right. But you've got to love his, his loyalty. Jo, uh, Joab tells him in verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night, and that'll be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your mouth until now. He says, get up. Go speak to them. If you don't, they're not going to be on your side in the morning. You think it's bad? You think you've had trouble before? Nothing. You're not going to have any trouble like, like, like what was going on. What happened to David in this situation? What happened? He's, certainly he's in a, in a deep state of mourning. Certainly he, he's, he's, you know what? I think it's this. I think his perspective is off. I think his perspective has, has failed him. He's focusing on who? Himself. He's focusing on his, himself. What is he forgetting? That God's in control. That God has given him victory. That God has restored the nation Israel to him. That God has brought his people home safely. But instead, he's, he's at home doing what? He's having his own little pity party. Right? You ever have one of those? Your own little pity party. You know, it's all oh, poor me. Oh, nobody likes me. Oh, nobody, you know, nobody cares about me. Oh, oh, life is bad. And if nobody understands me. Nobody understands how, how hard my life is. Oh, nobody, nobody gets it. Nobody, yeah, poor me. You don't understand my past. You don't understand where I came from. If, he's having his own little pity party at home. He, oh, my son died and my other son died and my daughter and all these problems. And, and he, he's, he's, now he's overwhelmed literally by his emotions to where he's violently trembling He's violently trembling. He's got a good friend that comes alongside of him and says, suck it up, David. Come on, buddy. you got a whole nation that's going to stand behind you. Sometimes you got to get past your emotions and go do what's the right thing to do. As Christians, should we be people who are led by our emotions? No. Should, does it mean that we shouldn't be emotional? Not at all. God gave us emotions, but here's what we need to understand. Your emotions should not control you. They should not consume you. They should not lead you to make decisions. You're going to make decisions based on the word of God, based on the truth of God's word, based on what God's called you to do, not based on emotions. If you find yourself in an emotional state, you find yourself having that emotional pity party, you find yourself thinking all about yourself, you find yourself stuck in the house because you don't want to go out and meet anybody and nobody cares and nobody understands and it's poor me and woe is me. What do you do to get out of it? How do you get out of it? You change your perspective. You get the proper perspective and you realize, you know what? God's in control of my life. 
God is doing something in my life. Maybe there's something I need to learn in this situation. Maybe I just need to get past my emotions. I'm not going to allow my emotions to keep me locked up and keep me confined. I'm not going to allow my emotions to tell me, to, to tell me how I'm going to think. I'm going to get past my emotions in that sense. Do we know people who allow their emotions to rule their life? We call it drama, don't we? Sometimes, oh, you know certain people, that are, there's always the drama in their life. There's always the thing. There's, and they always want to do what? They want to draw you into their drama. They want to bring you in. And what do they want you to get? They want you to get emotional with them. Listen, when your friends come to you like that, that you, the, the worst thing you can do is jump in, and emotional, in, in, in with them emotionally. Don't do that. Bring them back down. You need to be a friend like Joab. If you, if, stop with the emotions. Stop. We need to make a decision through prayer. We need to seek God. We're going to work this out. Don't jump into the emotional because here's what you'll find. If you jump in on their side, there's always another side to the story, isn't there? There's usually three sides at minimum to every story. See, I thought there was two. No, there's your side, there's my side, and there's the truth. There's always at least three sides because we're all going to skew a story a little bit towards ourselves, aren't we? We always want to present ourselves in the best light possible, don't we? I don't want to present myself in a bad light. I, maybe I did have some fault there, but I'm going to leave that part out. I'm just going to tell you the good part of it, right? That's what happens. That's not who, as Christians, you know, realize that God's given us emotions, and emotions can be a very good thing, but they are not the thing that lead our life. They are the things that we have to bring into subjection, we have to bring under control, and we don't want to be overly emotional people. David's problem here is he has lost, he is consumed, he is overtaken by his emotion. He's gone too far in the grieving process. Yes, it's a shame that his son turned against him, but it's also good that his son is no longer alive because he's no longer against him. There's a greater thing that's working here, and God is, God is in control because he is the one who established David as the king of Israel, and he's the one who gave them the victory. Remember, remember how the victory came? The woods swallowed up more soldiers of, of Absalom than David's men killed. God was the one giving him the victory. How did, do you think it's really by chance that, that Absalom got hung in a tree? Or do you think God had something to do with that? Because he said, if you're going to come against my people... If you're going to come against my hand, because Absalom wasn't spiritual, he didn't care about what God said. If you're going to come up against what I'm doing, you're not going to make it very long. I believe that's what took place. God said, if you're going to come against my king that I've anointed, you're not going to make it. And therefore, he, Absalom gets hung in a tree and the donkey keeps walking. He's hanging there with his feet off the ground. And Joab's in David's life and Joab takes care of Absalom being the problem. David now needs to overcome his emotions. That's exactly what Joab says. He says, listen, if you don't go get off this bed, you won't wipe those tears out of your eyes, you don't go deal with those people, you're not going to have a kingdom tomorrow morning. You're not going to have it. You're going to lose everything, David, because you're too focused on yourself. You're being too selfish. Now get out there and go talk to those people who risked their lives and their families for you. Verse 8. Then the king arose, and he sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So what did David do? He took Absalom's advice. He got up and he did what he needed to do. He did what was right. Let me ask you a question. Is that what he felt like doing? What did he feel like doing? He felt like crying. Felt like laying there in bed, laying on his little king bed or king throne bed or whatever he had in there. And he was going to lay in his palace and just leave me alone and I'm going to be in my room and be alone. That's what his emotions told him to do. But his good friend, Absalom, 
came alongside and said, David, knock it off. I'm sorry, Joab. Ah, you guys know who I mean. His good friend Joab comes alongside and says, David, knock it off. Get out of your bed and go to the people. Would you be a friend that would tell your friend that? Would you be that kind of friend? Or would you just coddle them and tell them, no, no, just it's okay, I understand, and I know nobody, no, people really do like you, and it's okay, and you'll be fine, and tomorrow's a new day. And, or would you tell them, get out of bed and go do what you have to do? Since when do we wait till we feel like doing something to do it? How many of you go to work only when you feel like it? <laughs> would you ever get there? No. Why do you go to work? Because you have to. It's the right thing to do. So why would we, put, why would we apply that differently in different parts of our life? Do we go to church when we feel like going to church? No. We go to church when we, when, on Sundays and Thursdays. Why? Or Wednesdays. Whatever we go. Whatever you're, it's because it's the right thing to do. It's where I meet with God. It's where I need to be encouraged. And you know what the funny thing is? When you take the option out of the equation, there's no longer a decision to make. If you make, here, here's how it worked in my family. When, when I first got saved and, and Rebecca and I got married right about that same time, I guess, we, we would go to church occasionally. You know, we were, we were, you know, I don't know, once a month or so. And we'd go here when we felt like it. If, if it was a sunny day and, you know, we had tickets to the Dolphins game, well, we just missed church that day. But then there came a point where we said, we're no longer going to miss church for these things. This is going to be something that we're going to do. Missing church is no longer an option for me. I don't have a, when I wake up Sunday, even now, I can't decide, you know, I don't feel like going to church today. There's no, there's no choice. There's no option. Well, of course not, Rob, you're here. But is there an option in your life? Is there a choice in your life? Do you wake up and go, well, it depends on how I feel. It depends on how I feel. Now, I'm not saying if you're sick, stay home. We don't want what you got. But it, it, or do you go, well, I don't feel like doing. Ministry is never convenient. If you wait to do things that you feel like doing, you'll never get them done. We need to be people who will move based on doing what's right according to the word of God, not people who move on based on how we feel. Sometimes that's hard. David comes out into the gate, and it's just what the people needed to see. They needed to see that their king was behind them. They needed to see that he was with them. Even though he didn't feel like doing it, he did it because it was the right thing. He, wasn't, he got past his emotional pity party. We need to do the same thing. We all have them. We all have different ways. We all have the different emotionals. We all, it, it always, it all, it, it'll manifest itself in everybody's life differently. It's not whether, it's, it's you got to get past it. You move on and you do the right thing. We'll pick up in verse 9 next week as David comes back. He's back in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, there's going to be a little bit dispute about whether he should be king or not. But we'll, we'll pick that up next week. Father, we just come before you and say thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for giving us David. Thank you for recording these books in his life for us. Father, there's so much we can learn from him. And uh, Lord, just as he struggles with emotions, we do too. May we, may we move past them. May we not be those, let those things, those emotions lead us and guide us. May they not take us away from doing the things that are right. Take us away from doing the things that you've called us to do. Instead, may we walk in obedience, fulfilling your calling for our life. May we May we truly be concerned about our relationship with you. May our desire to grow closer to you increase. May our study of your word be fruitful. And may you continue to meet us in the scriptures. Father, may we be good messengers of your word. May we tell the whole story, not just a partial story. May we not be concerned about what people think about our faith in Jesus Christ. May we be sold out for you, following hard after you, allowing you to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.